You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Sex, conflict, ids, and egos. Our guest today has authored Revolution in Mind, the Creation of Psychoanalysis, which instructs us in the history of this movement and how innovators like Freud and Jung can be viewed through the lens of their cultural times. Welcome to the ReachMD Book Club. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, author of You Can Think Like a Psychiatrist, your host, and with me today is Dr. George McCary. Dr. McCary is an associate professor of psychiatry and the director of the Institute for the History of Psychiatry at Cornell Weill Medical College, an adjunct associate professor at Rockefeller University and on the faculty of Columbia's Psychoanalytic Center. Aside from his private practice, Dr. McCary is researching the psychotherapeutic process and the history and theory of psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. Welcome to ReachMD, Dr. McCary. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really curious as to why you wrote this book. Most people think psychoanalysis is long dead and buried. Well, you know, actually, there's a Stanley Fish who made a funny comment about that. He said, psychoanalysis is dead because it's everywhere. And I think there really is something to that. If you look through the daily paper, it's hard not to encounter the language of psychoanalysis again and again. If you watch daytime TV, it's all over the place. And it's still the most common language we have for inner experience. It's true, though, that psychoanalysis as a treatment form has certainly gone down in its frequency. But what people have noticed, and there's pretty good statistics on this, is that the number of people in some sort of outpatient psychotherapy in the United States has only gone up over the last decade. So, you know, I think that while psychoanalysis itself as a treatment is rarer and rarer, psychoanalytically informed psychotherapies are all over. That's one of the reasons I thought it was important that we should understand where this thing came from and what it is that we're doing when we do those psychotherapies, either as a patient or as a practitioner. How were you able to find the details of these things that happened well over 100 years ago in some cases? Well, you know, it took a lot of fishing, and I have to say it was a lot of fun because nothing like the hunt if you're in my field. And so one of the things about psychoanalysis, because of World War II, many of those people spread out all over the world. And so to retrace their steps and find their papers in L.A., in Boston, in London, in many places not their homes, Berlin and Vienna, that was part of the challenge of this. And, of course, there's a lot of things locked away in archives in Zurich and in London and in Vienna. And so altogether, those things, kind of like trying to put together a puzzle that had been, you know, tossed up in the air because of World War II and the Holocaust and mass immigration. And that was part of the challenge, but it was really fun to do. Oh, I bet. How long did it take you? Well, you know, it took me years. I've been writing papers in the field for years, but I really didn't have this big book idea until about six or seven years ago, and it took me about five or six years to write it. Now, at that point, I had been doing research in the field for a decade, so I banked on all that work that I had done before. And lots of plane trips, it sounds like. Lots of trips to Europe. It's not their worst things in life. Yeah, exactly. Sounds good to me. Well, tell us about Freud's early days. You know, part of the reason I wrote this book was that I felt that there was a lot of focus on Freud that emphasized his individuality and didn't really place him appropriately in this context that had been ripped to shreds after World War II. So I spent a lot of time trying to put Freud's early life in the context of a whole bunch of other people and a bunch of other communities, and folks who were thinking about the same kinds of problems. 
So what I argue is that there's about after 1850, 1860, there's a problem that people are trying to solve. It's how to have a science of inner life, of the mind. And if you're going to try to do that, there were a couple of kind of rules that you couldn't break. One was it had to make sense with science, because that was the arbiter of what was real and what wasn't real. The second was it had to make sense with the dominant ideas about physiology and physics, Newton. It couldn't break those rules and come up with ideas that made no sense in a Newtonian universe. And lastly, it had to make sense with Darwin and evolution. There were a bunch of people in other fields trying to come up with a model for inner life. And I argue that Freud took a lot from those folks, but ultimately came up with a synthesis that won the contest of ideas in that very early period in his life. That's between about 1880 and 1905, when he synthesizes all of these ideas from other people and incorporates them into his major theory. So can you give us an example of an idea he did take from another field? Sure. So one of the things we think about when we think about psychoanalysis, we think about, oh, they use this thing called free association, and they make their patients associate and things of that nature. Well, associational psychology was a very old model of psychology that came from British philosophy and had been incorporated in France into a way of trying to understand kind of the microprocessing of inner experience. So how one idea led to another idea, how led to another idea, and how an idea could be split off from that chain of associations, which became known as an idea that was dissociated. Now, we in common parlance talk about dissociation and people in highly traumatic states being dissociated. That's where that language comes from. Well, Freud adopted that from the French, who had adopted it from the British, and pulled that right into the center of his theory about how we can try to understand another person's inner experience. So that would be one example, but there are many. What I I argue is that, you know, Freud was a synthesis who pulled a lot of these ideas into his model, but then came up with critical, crucial new ideas that he added. It was as if, you know, it wasn't like he invented the car out of nothing. It was, you know, a cart that was pulled by horses, and he figured out maybe the combustion engine, something more like that. If you're just joining our discussion, you're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. George McCary. We are discussing his book, Revolution in Mind, The Creation of Psychoanalysis. George, could... Freud have done this anywhere other than Vienna? You know, Leslie, that's a great question, and and people have argued about it back and forth. Good historians take opposite opinions on this. I would say that probably the ball could have gotten rolling somewhere else in Middle or Western Europe. As I say, there are a bunch of people in Berlin and in Munich and other places that were in the game, in the hunt. But it would have taken a different shape, and I think it would have been less likely to have caught Vienna was the great medical center of Europe at that time. It was also a teeming metropolis that had a whole host of currents that ended up feeding psychoanalysis, not creating it in itself, but feeding it. And one of those was there had been a kind of breakdown of conventional morality. The Habsburg Empire was collapsing 400 years of doing business the same way and believing in the aristocracy, had left them really ready for something new. So there was a great sense of excitement and experiment, 
figuring out what would be a healthier, more natural way to live that had overtaken Vienna. And it very much brought people to Freud. So would those people have come to Freud if he was in Zurich? No, they weren't there in Zurich. Could he possibly, in his library, in by himself in Zurich, have come up with a theory? Yes, he possibly could have. But I argue that Vienna was very important to the building of the psychoanalytic movement. When I think about Freud, I think automatically about the treatment of hysteria, which we rarely see in practice today. Why do you think that is? Yeah, that's also a great question, and people argue about that. You know, there are a couple of different positions. One is that this was partially a socially determined illness, that the repressive conditions, for instance, for Austro-Hungarian women in the late 19th century, and after all, hysteria was mostly an illness that was deemed only afflicting women, they lived in an airless, repressed society that gave them very few options. So one of the arguments is that the psychoanalysis and increased psychological mindedness made this illness disappear. There are others who argue, you know, it really didn't disappear. It disappeared from psychiatry, and that if you go to neurological outpatient clinics, you still see, in essentially the same incidence, hysterics. So it's a fascinating debate about whether this was a disappearing illness, and we, we there are examples of illnesses that disappear in different cultures and over time, or whether it kind of slipped between the cracks. Neurologists don't like to diagnose it. These people don't think of themselves as having psychiatric illnesses and don't like to go to psychiatrists. And between the two, these people are still out there, but we are not we're not noticing them as much. Now, George, most of our listeners are not psychiatrists, certainly not psychoanalysts, probably mostly primary care docs, and uh, really have no interest in psychoanalysis in the day-to-day practice. How can they best make use of Freud's theories in their practices? Well, you know, I think the most important part of the theories would not be actually so much Freud's, but psychoanalysis's theories. Every kind of doctor in, in some way faces the challenge of telling their patients things that are hard to hear, giving them bad news, warning them about the potential of bad news. And one of the things that all doctors know is that some people simply refuse to get it, refuse to do what they need to do to take care of themselves, act in all sorts of ways that, you know, make it seem as if they're unaware. So the theories of defense of character structure and how we defend ourselves from unpleasant, overwhelming stimuli. I think that's very important for primary care doctors who have to confront denial all the time. People don't take their medications. We know that. It's actually a huge problem. They don't come for their checkups. They come when it's way too late. That all has potential for being mitigated a little bit if you understand your patient and understand how they're defending themselves against what is overwhelming and unhappy information. You know, I think that in the other ways, primary care doctors might be more aware of how things that might not fit into a label like major depression could require treatment. And those kinds of things would be the things like interpersonal failures, inability to have relationships, inability to hold a job, sudden rage and self-esteem problems that those things are all part and parcel of what psychotherapy treats. And I think, you know, that's not for the primary care doc to treat, but to simply make an astute observation and then a referral. 
Thank you so much for being on our show today. Oh, it's my pleasure. We've been discussing the book, Revolution in Mind, The Creation of Psychoanalysis, with its author, Dr. George McCary. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the ReachMD Book Club on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and your comments, so please visit us at ReachMD.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Thank you for listening.